You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week we are talking about federal housing policy and I've got on the line with me Daniel K. Hertz. Daniel's a, a senior fellow at City Observatory. He's a recent graduate of the MPP program at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Not only is he right for City Observatory, he also has his own blog, DanielKHertz.com, where he focuses on Primarily Chicago housing issues. Daniel, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Are you uh, are you a Chicago native? I am a Chicago native. Yeah, I grew up here. Uh, we moved around a little bit in uh, high school, so I actually spent two years in Madison, Wisconsin, before we moved back to the Chicago area. Uh, moved to Evanston when I was sixteen. This is the first time you and I have ever chatted, so I'm, I'm going to give you the ultimate test. Uh, to determine okay. from Chicago whether whether you and I are going to be friends or, or not, <laughs> are you a a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan? Oh, I'm a Cubs fan. Oh, I grew okay. Up on the north side. <laughs> then we can be yeah. friends. <laughs> okay, glad to hear. It. Yeah, no, I definitely I grew up. Yeah, watching Mark Grace and all those. Oh, great! Nice. I'm in the AL Central. I do not like the Chicago White Sox. No offense to yeah, there pe- you go. That's people right. who do, but yeah, I just can't, I can't cheer for the White Sox in any way. I was in Chicago and I brought my daughter to a White Sox game and you know, we wore our twins jerseys and she is like six years old. So this cute little kid with a pink twins jersey on, we, she got booed. Like we were walking in our seats. They booed her. I don't know, you guys. Yeah, no. Sox Park can be a little rough, I guess. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I want to talk about housing policy. And, you know, you've written some very insightful things on uh, gentrification, which is one of those kind of hot button issues. And the thing I, I find most interesting about what you've written is that gentrification not only deals with displacement, but there's also another element to it that's not often discussed. You... Can you talk a little bit about some of your insights? You know, I've written about gentrification both from the perspective of Chicago and also sort of, you know, cities across the country. One of the things that that we talk about at City Observatory is, you know, is sort of the connection that's made between gentrification and displacement. You know, the the dominant narrative. You know, I actually have a, not to to give away too much, I have an op-ed coming out in Planning Magazine next month about this. But, you know, if you ask sort of urban planners or people who follow these issues, you know, what's one of the biggest issues, what's one of the biggest problems in, in American housing policy today? And, and in American cities in general, you know, they'll say a displacement caused by gentrification. That's understandable because in some very, you know, very high-profile neighborhoods of New York and uh, San Francisco and, you know, in Chicago, too, there really have been some pretty dramatic demographic changes over the last 20 to 30 years, the trend of young people and young professionals um, and higher income people moving into city centers and sort of increasing demand for, for urban living is, is real. And all of that is very real. But we think that that focus is misguided or, or misleading in at least two ways. One of them is that the connection between gentrification and displacement is 
both weaker and, and different than is generally believed. So, uh, you know, most, in fact, almost you know, almost all of the studies that we've seen that have, that have been looking for the connection between gentrification and displacement have showed that, in fact, there isn't really a notable increase in out-migration from modern and low-income people in gentrifying neighborhoods. And that really, the, the, the force for demographic change is the, the change in the people who are moving in, which has to do both with sort of changing demands for who wants to live there, you know, but also then that is also a mechanism by which right, prices can price people out, right? People who previously would have considered moving to a neighborhood don't. Partly, at least, because of prices. But that's a very different narrative and sort of, you know, may lead to different policy solutions than, um, than the sort of more common narrative. You know, the other maybe sort of bigger issue with the, the conventional narrative about gentrification is that it really, it's misleading about what typically happens to low-income segregated neighborhoods. You know, we at the Observatory, we did a study um, called uh, Lost in Place, last year that found that, you know, of neighborhoods with uh, high poverty neighborhoods in 1970, only about 10% um, by 2010 had poverty rates below the national average, which, you know, I think would be sort of a baseline for a gentrified neighborhood. So 90% almost, either about two-thirds in 2010 still had poverty rates of more than twice the national average. And then the difference, you know, another 20% or so had declined, you know, had a declining poverty rate, but we're still above the national average. More importantly, you know, or, or also importantly, in those neighborhoods that remained very high poverty, those two-thirds of high poverty neighborhoods that remained high poverty, those, you know, population in those neighborhoods plummeted and just crashed. I think it's something like 40%. We would like to make the point that, you know, that is also a kind of displacement, right? Because those people are leaving because, in many cases, those neighborhoods, high poverty neighborhoods, are not providing basic quality of life for their residents, right? In terms of public schools, in terms of everyday retail and grocery stores, in terms of access to jobs, public safety. And that kind of, you know, you know, you call that a kind of displacement. That kind of displacement is actually much more common than the sort of gentrification-led displacement that gets more more coverage. Yeah. So let me say this back to you and make sure that I've got this right. You're essentially saying that neighborhoods that have been poor for a long time are tending to stay poor. Is that a yeah. fair? Yes. And and then where we do see gentrification, we're not always seeing displacement. Uh, we may just be seeing a lot of wealthier people move in with some displacement, but not statistically the overwhelming majority of displaced people. Is that kind of what you started with? Yeah. So, so what we see is we, we don't see people leaving the neighborhood necessarily more quickly when it starts to gentrify. What we do see is we see lower-income people no longer moving into the neighborhood. Ah, I which, see. You yep. know, which could also be a, a, a result of of high prices, you know, and we've made the point that, you know, in, in many of these neighborhoods where demand, housing demand is, you know, increasing very rapidly, uh, you know, the Bay Area is sort of a poster child for this, but it applies to lots of neighborhoods around the country. You know, the number of jobs is increasing, the amount of housing supply, or the amount of housing demand is increasing, but 
these neighborhoods and these cities aren't necessarily building more housing. And so, you know, when, when these more high-income people show up in the neighborhood to decide they want to live there, there, aren't, there isn't as much new housing development that they might be interested in, in, in purchasing. And so instead, you know, landlords decide to, you know, they essentially the newcomers, you know, outbid lower-income potential newcomers for the same housing. Is this kind of a function, too, of... I mean, most of the new stuff that we see in neighborhoods that are gentrifying tend to be higher end condo units, higher end apartments. We, we don't, <laughs> you know, in gentrifying neighborhoods, we don't typically take the, the rundown place and, and fix it up a little bit. We tend to rip it down and build something that's for a quite different demographic. Is, is that part of that effect? Uh, it, you know, it's definitely true that most new housing, not only in gentrifying neighborhoods, but, uh, you know, in general, most new housing is built for higher income people. And that's, that's, that's basically always been true, at least since, um, you know, modern building standards and, and that sort of thing were, were implemented. We, we've also, I, you know, I've written about, about this process of filtering, which I think should really need ought to be better understood by, you know, people participating in this conversation. You know, most affordable housing in the country is not subsidized housing. It doesn't get special low-income subsidies. It's just market-rate housing that's cheap. And most market-rate housing that's cheap was also built for upper-middle or upper-income people uh, originally. But as it aged, you know, I mean, and you can go into, you know, a, a central city neighborhood in almost any city in the country and find a neighborhood like this, right, where that was originally built for relatively affluent people. And is now, you know, that very same housing is now occupied by low-income people. That's called filtering, right? As, as new housing gets older, it gets cheaper because it's no longer in style, because it no longer has built amenities, because, you know, the floors start to creak and, you know. It's just, it's, you know, just not as desirable for housing. But the problem is, you know, that process of housing becoming cheaper as it gets older, that depends on the sort of constant supply of new housing for wealthier people to move into. So they give up, the, you know, the older housing and, and, and the prices to fall. In regions of the country, and there's, you know, there's actually a paper about this that came out a little bit ago that I covered. The, in, in regions of the country that have seen this, you know, decline in new construction, which is particularly strong on the coasts, the filtering process of new housing becoming older and becoming cheaper has been slowed really dramatically. And so, you know, buildings that are 20, 40, 50 years old, 60 years old, that should be getting much cheaper are not. And that has, is sort of creating a, a problem. But then on the flip side, you know, something... I think you might have alluded to, uh, but either way, I'll allude to it. You know, there is a problem in terms of new construction, uh, in terms of what kinds of buildings get built. There's something called the missing middle, uh, which is the sort of medium-sized, uh, medium-density housing construction. You know, things like two flats, duplexes, you know, small apartment buildings. Uh, I think some people would include, you know, backyard cottages on that. And um, the you know, missing middle... Construction is important for a lot of reasons. You know, it's a way of adding density and adding people to a neighborhood without sort of imposing big buildings that, that you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable with in their neighborhoods. Uh, but it's also, you know, that is sort of the, the sweet spot for lowest cost per unit in terms of construction. 
but unfortunately, as you might sort of guess with the name Missing Middle, that's a kind of, uh, kind of housing that American cities just haven't been building very much of for quite a while now. So most construction in American cities is in either single-family homes, which are, you know, inherently very expensive in urban areas because uh, they take up a lot of land per unit, and urban land is really expensive. Or, uh, you know, you get these sort of downtown, very dense high-rises, which are also pretty expensive per unit because, you know, it requires lots of engineering costs and, you know, you just need to do a lot more to a building that's you know, 20 stories high than one that's you know three or four stories high. You know, so missing middle housing is, is important for uh, a couple of reasons. You know, one is that uh, it's a way of adding density that doesn't have to be very imposing for neighborhoods, and you know, but another is that you know it's relatively it's relatively cheap and it and it and can depreciate into something that's truly affordable once it's no longer brand new. But, you know, cities, American cities, most American cities haven't been building that kind of housing for decades now. You know, the, the, the affordable housing problem in many neighborhoods is, you know, that's a significant contributor, right. contributor to it in many places. I think I understand the the notion of new buildings being built in poor neighborhoods, which are not accessible for people that are there because they're more expensive. I think I understand the notion of buildings that once used to kind of degrade, I guess, to the point where they became affordable. That that phenomenon is is not happening quite as often. You also mentioned dislocation in like persistently poor neighborhoods where essentially people for reasons of despair, in a sense, are choosing to leave because the opportunity is not there. Do I have that right? Is it a, is it really a despair kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I won't you know speak for the emotional state of the people there, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's um... when I say despair, I'm not talking about the emotions as much as just the. Uh, you know, the lack of opportunities. You're, if you live in a place where your, your property value is going down or, you know, you're renting and because values are stagnating, the landlord is not making improvements or not taking care of the property. You have diminished job prospects. You have difficult schools to send your kids. These are places that just give rise to a certain level of desperation and, and despair. Those places you're talking about are actually losing population. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. 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 So, you know, so take, you know, where I'm I'm standing in Chicago right now. You know, there's been lots and lots of press about um, you know, gentrification in Chicago. There's been much less about what's going on on the south and west sides from that perspective, from the sort of housing perspective, population perspective. There was sort of a, a flurry of things after the 2010 census announced that Chicago had lost almost 7% of its population, which surprised a lot of people because, you know, downtown and the, and the north side are probably as economically healthy as they've ever been. Housing's expensive, yeah. Right, and housing prices are up, right? And so people are, you know, so at the same time that people are writing about how housing prices are too high on in downtown on the north side, you know, we have the flip side of the problem on, on the south and west sides where these segregated, both racially and increasingly uh, economically neighborhoods, you know, mostly black neighborhoods on the south and west side, are continuing to lose population. You know, not only have, have housing prices not, reached their, you know, pre-housing uh, bubble peak, they're basically flat from the previous housing cycle. 
from like 2000, which means that all of the people who live in these neighborhoods, you know, the majority of Chicago's black population, have not built any housing wealth for 15 years. Have seen half a generation of stagnation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, you know, when, when if, you're, if you're worried about, you know, racial inequality, you know, and, and economic inequality more, more broadly, but this is a particularly racialized phenomenon. If you're worried about racial inequality, worried about the racial wealth gap, that's a huge issue. The fact that, yeah, right, basically almost a generation of black homeowners in Chicago have, and, and this is not, I mean, I should be clear, this is not a Chicago phenomenon. This is something that you can see across the, across the country. And actually, the, the last year, I believe, the Washington Post did an excellent series about this exact issue in the uh, African-American suburbs of D.C. You know, you've had almost a generation of black homeowners that are basically not been able to build any housing wealth. And that is a huge part of, of the racial wealth gap, which at the moment is, you know, some, I think whites, you know, the, the median white household net worth is something like 10 times higher than the median black household net worth. Uh, and and the, the phenomenon of high poverty neighborhoods becoming even more high poverty and, and losing population, losing housing demand is, is a huge part of that. I'd like to talk a little bit about federal policy and, and how this has shaped and really driven some of these outcomes. When we talk about the high-end kind of construction, the the stuff that we think of when we think of gentrification, you come into a poor neighborhood, you, you know, rehab the place and, and, and make it really high-end, or you tear it down and build a new set of condo units. Does federal policy encourage that or facilitate that? Is that is that something that is consistent with what some of the programs kind of facilitate? Yeah, so so that's a really interesting question. One of the sort of broader points that I and, and Joe Corey, also at City Observatory, have, have been making and trying to sort of hit home is, you know, we really have this like two-faced federal housing policy and, and local housing policy for that matter. You know, on the one hand, we want, housing to be affordable, right? We want people to be able to buy homes or uh, or rent, you know, and so we give subsidies to people, not enough, but we give some, you know, we give rental subsidies in the form of housing vouchers. We we give tax credits to people who are building low-income housing. On the other hand, it's been policy, federal policy for, you know, three quarters of a century now that homes are probably the single biggest wealth-building tool for Americans, right? And how do you build wealth in your home? You build wealth in your home by having its price go up, which is a, you know directly contradictory to the goal of having housing be more affordable. You know, so at the federal level, you know, one of the ways that that manifests is things like the, the mortgage interest tax deduction, which, you know, ostensibly is meant to help people buy homes, right? Encourage people to buy homes. You know, in, in practice, it ends up overwhelmingly going to wealthy people, right? I, I, I right. want to say... I mean, essentially, the, the larger the debt you have, the larger the house you buy, the, the more the tax credit helps you. Right. right. And you have to be making enough money to itemize your deduction. Right, right. Right. And so something, I want to say something like five, six, Although I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something like five six of the benefit goes to people making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, and so, what, you know, what research shows is that in fact, 
the mortgage interest tax deduction, it doesn't actually encourage people to, to, to buy homes who otherwise would not have because it's going to be people who are making enough money that they could afford a home anyway. What it encourages people to do is it encourages wealthy people to buy bigger homes because it's, it's a subsidy to the, the bigger home that they buy, you know, the more savings they get. That's one area, for example, where, um, you know, federal priorities are really out of whack with with the idea that we want to be encouraging sort of affordable housing. Just one other thing that I would add to that is, you know, there's been a massive, basically since the Reagan era, there's been a massive decrease in funding available for sort of direct low-income housing assistance also. So in terms of the, you know, the total number of people, of, of the people, you know, who would, who would be eligible for direct federal housing subsidies, whether it's, you know, public housing or vouchers or, you know, or other forms of, of direct assistance, it's really, it's really shrunk, right? And that, uh, and that has also had a big effect, you know? So, so, you know, in places like, like New York, uh, which has a huge, huge, huge public housing sector and never really, you know, unlike Atlanta or Chicago or a lot of other cities that really tore down their public housing in the 90s and 2000s, York still has it. It's 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 public housing. Yeah, you have neighborhoods where market prices have really really shot up, but a significant proportion of the housing, you know, sometimes like half the housing in a in a neighborhood, in a place like Chelsea, for example, is is public housing, and so there's still room for low income people. But that's that is basically unique to New York, right? But in, in the rest of America, that sort of that sort of support has just dried up. It, it seems like. If I'm going to have the developer go out and build the condo unit, it's fairly easy for me to go then and get the mortgage on it. There's the FHA programs, the Fannie and Freddie secondary market. Uh, I can have little money down, you know, get my interest tax deducted and, and it's a pretty streamlined process. But if I'm, if I'm interested in one of those missing middle kind of places and I've got to go in and buy a place and then, you know, put some money into it to fix it up, to make it habitable and up to code and all. There really isn't a program that is as simple as the turnkey home mortgage for, for any of that kind of housing. Is that a is that a fair statement? My impression is that, yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I, a year or two ago, I was doing an internship while I was in, in uh, grad school. I was doing an internship at uh, the Center for Neighborhood Technology here in Chicago, which is a great sort of urban think tank, I think they call them a think and do tank is how they describe themselves. Anyway, we were doing work on um, parking requirements. One of the things that we were looking at is uh, the strings and requirements on uh, federal subsidies specifically for low-income housing developers. So this is, you know, specifically housing that, you know, you, won't, you don't even have to wait for it to filter down, right? This is going to be affordable to start. But there are all of these requirements from parking requirements, to, uh, you know, requirements that, that cap the amount of square footage that can be used for non-residential, you know, commercial um, or other uses. And, you know, essentially what it does is it, it makes it incredibly difficult to build sort of mid-range, in terms of size, mid-range urban infill housing, right? Because if you think of what, what are the sort of classic urban housing type, uh, you know, it's two to three, maybe four stories with, you know, commercial retail or, you know, some sort of non-residential use on the first floor and then, you know, some apartments or, or, or condos above. Uh, and, it, you know, it takes up most of the 
uh, most of the lot, right? It uses most of the, of the lot that it's built on. But if all of a sudden you can't do uh, a non-residential use on the first floor and you have to add parking so that you need, you either have to build a garage, right? Uh, structured parking, which is incredibly expensive, or you have to buy enough land to somehow make a, to shoehorn in a parking lot for, you know, a 20 unit building. That's a, that's a decent number of cars, right? For, for low income households who, you know, many of whom probably don't even own cars, it can make it, uh, it can make it really prohibitive to build urban housing using, using these federal programs. So yeah, I think that, that definitely is a problem. When we look at these neighborhoods in decline, then the the ones where we're having displacement due to what I call despair, or you know, people people leaving to seek better options, how do the federal programs affect those neighborhoods or or fail to help those neighborhoods? Maybe is a better way to put it. Is there an interaction there between what our housing programs are and these places where we do see decline that is set in that's difficult to arrest? You know, historic, certainly historically, there's, there's you know, huge, huge, huge connection. So redlining, which um, I, I would assume, you know, many of your, or your listeners are familiar with, but just... Why don't you, know, you go ahead? Just recap. Yeah, right. Just to recap, uh, you know, in the, in the 1920s and 30s, the federal government took what had been private re- uh, uh, bank practice of sort of rating neighborhoods based on basically the creditworthiness of the of the neighborhood and institutionalized them. Uh, you know, the, the Roosevelt administration as part of the New Deal basically institutionalized them when they created these, you know, the, the sort of national secondary uh, mortgage market and, and, and sort of revolutionized how easy it was to get a mortgage. But as part of doing that, they also institutionalized the practice of basically marking huge numbers of neighborhoods as uh, as no-go zones, you know, literally were colored red on the map, so you get the, the word redlining. The criteria by which they decided that a neighborhood was redlined was, you know, A, that it had a traditional urban form. I mean, literally, if you, like, took a new urbanist checklist of things that neighborhoods should have, right, uh, buildings that address the street, you know, multifamily buildings, walkable, you know, block patterns, all of those things would get would get your neighborhood redlined. Uh, would, would say the, the federal government will not insure loans to buy housing in these neighborhoods. And then the second thing was any kind of racial mixing, right? I mean, it, it was, this was not one of these things where they sort of used, you know, sneaky code words to, to not give loans to black people. This was this was literally if there are black people here, no, <laughs> no, we won't do it. Or or if it's or if it's racially mixed, even. Uh, we won't do it. And so urban neighborhoods, and particularly urban black neighborhoods, were basically shut out of this, you know, revolutionary new mortgage system that, that FDR created. It's hard for us to get our minds around that today because that seems so bizarre. But I I know at the time, I mean, the argument that the economists were making was that, well, these are, you know, the federal government's getting involved in housing. We're actually going to take on the liability here. And so, you know, these are considered high risk places. These policies, you know, we can look today and say this is just horrific. But at the time, they were actually trying to build like a a new America. I mean, they bought into the suburban notion that this is how everybody should live. And essentially, this was walking away from traditional neighborhoods, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
identity was, you know, considered inherently a bad bet. Uh, Mixed-use neighborhoods, so, you know, having a corner store that you could walk to on your otherwise residential block. The um, FHA gave really heavy incentives to get rid of that, you know. Um, so they were, you know, they were not only um, giving huge financial boost to the suburbs and new sort of greenfield construction, um, which they could sort of build from scratch to look like what they thought the neighborhood should look like, which is, you know, all single family homes, you know, residential uses completely separate from commercial uses. They also used their influence to try to sort of retrofit urban neighborhoods that didn't fit that mold to, to make them fit that mold. And that's where you, I mean, you know, you got everything from, um, sort of spot changes of, you know, corner spurs to residential uses to, you know, urban renewal demolition of entire neighborhoods right. to be reconstructed. Right. So we walked away from these neighborhoods and it was federal policy to, to do this. Over time, we've seen many of these neighborhoods stagnate to the point where we see persistent poverty over generations now. What is being done, or I guess what can be done to arrest this, to turn this around and, and bring it in a different direction? One thing that I have been increasingly interested in over the last few years is uh, a question of, uh, of, of stigma. And, you know, we... Red City Observatory mostly sort of work from perspective on economics and data and, and, you know, the question of stigma and why certain neighborhoods are so persistently, even neighborhoods that, you know, are, that are, you know, relatively, you know, again, I'm speaking from Chicago, so I can think of, you know, neighborhoods on the south and west sides that actually have transit connections to downtown that have pretty, you know, nice housing stock, but that have basically been shunned for generation. And there's some really, really interesting work by this guy, Robert Sampson, who's a sociologist, was at uh, the University of Chicago and now he's at Harvard, about uh, the role that, that stigma plays in sort of the, the, the paths of, of neighborhoods. And so, you know, one of these things that he found, this was pre-Google Street View, but he, he did these surveys where he asked people what they thought about you know, given neighborhoods, right? Is this the kind of neighborhood where you would expect X, Y, Z to happen, right? Where people would be loitering on corners or where there'd be trash strewn or where there'd be graffiti. And then he had his grad student RAs basically literally drive up and down every street, actually observing which neighborhoods really have all of these qualities. And he found that you know, the, the places that actually had those qualities and the places that were reputed to have those qualities were not necessarily the same ones. And, you know, the, the other influences on, on reputation were, you know, largely things that you would guess, right? Race, uh, the concentration of immigrants, things like that. That's sort of interesting on its own, but then even more interesting was that he could show that if you wanted to, so he did this over the course of several years, and he could show that if you wanted to predict um, what would happen to a neighborhood's poverty rate, say, or crime rate, it was actually as just as useful to know what people thought of that neighborhood, what its reputation was, as what actually was going on there in the beginning. Um, so, you know, it was, it was more useful to know, or just as useful to know what a neighborhood's reputation for crime was, as it was to know 
how much crime actually went on there in order to sort of predict uh, what would happen to its crime rate in the future. So, yeah, so this is sort of evidence that there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of neighborhoods that are stigmatized as bad. Uh, people avoid them. Uh, you know, businesses, investors avoid them. Uh, the city may even uh, avoid them in terms of, you know, public services. And those things then create uh, a neighborhood that's less desirable to live in, right, and that, that has more problems. So one of the things that I'm interested in, in sort of researching going forward and I don't know that I have any great answers to it right now, but uh, one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is, you know, what do you do about neighborhoods that are so heavily stigmatized, where the stigma itself is becoming part of the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, of this neighborhood, you know, lack of, lack of resources um, and lack of quality of life. And, you know, obviously that's, that's, that's you know, deeply entwined with uh, race in most American cities. You know, which which suggests that it that it may be a, a tough road to try and challenge that. But I think that's really important, and I think it's under talked about probably precisely because it's so hard to measure. Right? It's so hard to measure what stigma means and what sort of effect it has. Right. The kind of maybe handmaiden of the stigma is just the the then the inability to get capital, and yeah, it's a chicken and an egg kind of thing. But it's very hard to make a loan in a neighborhood with a deep level of stigma and, and persistent poverty. One of the kind of characteristics of our secondary market financing is, and we, we saw this in the housing bubble, we see this now in the second housing bubble, uh, there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy upward where you know, you don't have to have a lot of equity in the house because you stick with it for five years. And because everything's appreciating, all of a sudden you'll have all this equity. It gives the banks, it gives the, uh, you know, the secondary market kind of some assurance that there's margin for error here. And as long as the market's liquid and people can refinance, uh, we're not going to run into too many troubles. But in those neighborhoods where you have persistent poverty and stagnating property values, you don't have that appreciation. And all of a sudden, the lack of a down payment becomes a real or, you know, a very small down payment becomes a very big issue because not only is it more difficult to come by in those areas, because there's not a lot of you know, people don't have thousands of dollars just sitting around, but you also aren't going to have an upwardly mobile market kind of bail you out from any bad decisions. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and, and it, it, is, it is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you, one of the reasons you don't have a down payment is that your house didn't appreciate, your previous house or current house didn't appreciate to begin with, right? You don't, you don't make the kind of, you know, profit that, uh, homeowners in other neighborhoods might expect. You know, it's almost worse than no appreciation at all, right? Or, or just sort of flat prices because during the, you know, mortgage bubble of the mid 2000s, there were big price run-ups in some of these neighborhoods as a result of, um, you know, of, of easier credit and, and that sort of thing and, and sort of manipulative credit. And a lot of people bought and then it crashed and it hasn't really recovered. And so you have lots of people who not only have zero equity in their homes, but they have negative equity in their homes, um, which is obviously an even, an even more precarious situation to be in. Let me ask you this as kind of a last question. I, I look at the current mortgage market and I, I see the way it is wired to work really, really well for 
suburban expansion for the, the single family, you know, the cornfield being turned into a bunch of single family homes, the rundown neighborhood getting rebuilt in the condominium, high end condominium style. I, I see these systems working really well for the perpetuation of that. I'm wondering for people who care about persistent poverty and want to see investments in neighborhoods where there is poverty that benefits the people that are there. Is that something that is likely to emerge or, or be able to be solved at the federal level? Or is that something that literally we're going to have to figure out on a city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood kind of basis? Is this something that lends itself to a, a, a tweaking of federal policy? Or is this an issue that really is going to come down to us and, and what we're able to do here in our communities? I guess the, the cop out, but true answer is both. Yeah. Um, well, that's fair. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, so much of housing policy from zoning and, and, and otherwise is, is really very locally controlled. Right. And it, it comes down to not even necessarily your city council, but depending on where you live, maybe your specific councilman, right. Um, has control over what can and can't happen in your neighborhood. You know, at the same time, the federal government has a huge role to play in housing, right? Obviously, in terms of, um, you know, housing finance, but, you know, but also in terms of anti-discrimination enforcement. So, you know, look at what the Obama administration has done in places like Westchester County, New York, where, it, you know, one of the things they said, they, they sued Westchester County on, on discrimination grounds. And, you know, one of the things they said is, you know, your zoning promotes segregation in part by not allowing multifamily buildings uh, in, in, you know, vast, vast parts of the county. You know, that I think the federal world government has a role to play in both of those things. You know, it may also have a role to play in capacity building for local uh, local governments, right? So a lot of localities that may want to change some of their housing strategies but don't really have, know how or don't have the resources, you know, government federal programs, I think, can, can do grants or, or assistance and some of that. I, I guess I would, I would also say that, you know, I think we need to think of federal approaches to housing and federal housing policies as also us. You know, like that is, you know, we can act at the local level and we do, and we, you know, we have to act at the local level. But we also have to have our eye and have to make our voices heard at the federal level because so much of uh, of housing policy, as we've discussed uh, today, originates or is, is heavily, heavily influenced by federal moves. We can't just say, oh, you know, we will never get anything done there. We basically give up on the federal government. Uh, you know, even if, even if it doesn't look like any major reforms are sort of imminent, I think it's really important for, you know, for urbanists and people who care about, you know, even just their own neighborhood to... Yeah, you know, think about what they need and want from the federal government and to at least have a list of, you know, have a wish list, right, that they can send to their elected officials, whether or not it's going to be immediately implemented. You know, it's never going to be implemented. It's never going to get better unless we have, you know, unless we know what we want and we and we say out loud that, that there needs to be change at the federal level as well as at local, in local government. Daniel, I, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. I, I want to just remind people, 
if they'd like to hear more from you, they can do that at City Observatory, which is cityobservatory.org. And then also you've got your own blog at danielkhertz.com. We'll put both of those links uh, up on the site with your interview. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.